0: Is it possible there are biblical connections that are largely hidden from non-Jewish eyes? What if we could connect the dots and see Jesus as he intended us to see him in Scripture? You know, it's more than an interesting thought. It's the conversation that you'll take part in as you join us today for The Land and the Book plus current events in the Middle East. An intriguing set of listener questions and a devotional that you're going to hang on to, I can guarantee. That's our agenda today on The Land and the Book. Welcome to you wherever you're listening, online or on air. I'm John Gager. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar, and it's good to connect with you today as we look at current events, Charlie.
1: Uh, John, it is always great to be with you, so thanks.
0: Well, an interesting story out of the Middle East tops our list, and that would be for the first time in 15 years, Hezbollah fired rockets into Israel from Lebanon. We're, of course, used to Hamas, but this is Hezbollah. Why did they fire those rockets,
1: and why did they make such a public announcement about it? Hezbollah says it fired the rockets in response to an attack launched by Israeli warplanes against Palestinian positions in Lebanon. Israel's attack was in response to rockets the Palestinians fired into Israel from Lebanon earlier last week. In other words, the Palestinians fired across the border. Israel chose to ratchet up its response to send a message to that group saying such attacks wouldn't be tolerated. Hezbollah then fired their rockets into Israel and published video of the attack as a very public warning to Israel that any future attacks in Lebanon will be met by more Hezbollah rocket fire. Now, the concern in Israel, of course, is that Hezbollah has far more rockets and missiles than Hamas. And Hezbollah's arsenal contains longer-range missiles and missiles with a far greater degree of accuracy. For the past 15 years, Hezbollah has been building up its arsenal with help from Iran. Uh, In fact, Hezbollah has become the dominant force in Lebanon. Standing up to Israel, almost goading Israel into responding, actually increases their status in Lebanon, though it could lead to war. They assume a war with Israel would be relatively short. They could launch a large number of missiles and score some significant hits, and then the world would pressure Israel to accept a ceasefire before Israel could seriously degrade Hezbollah's fighting ability. Behind Hezbollah's new aggressiveness, of course, is Iran. Mm -hmm. They want to use Hezbollah and Hamas and Syria to encircle and weaken Israel. Uh, Short-term, this reduces Israel's ability to attack Iran. And long-term, it fits into their strategy to eventually destroy Israel and force the U.S. out of the Middle East. It's no accident that Hezbollah is now publicly challenging Israel at the same time that Iran is taking a very hard line in the nuclear negotiations with the U.S. They both perceive the governments in Israel and the U.S. to be less willing to respond militarily, and they're hoping to take advantage of that situation. I understand the uh, rockets hit Israel's northern frontier, and uh, any impact uh, long-term from those rockets? Uh, No real long-term impact. The areas that they hit are right along that border that Israel shares with Lebanon. Uh, Some of the communities up in that area, of course, felt some of the impact, uh, but it didn't make a major impact on Israel proper. And of course, that was by design because Israel would have been forced to respond then far more aggressively. Well, let me follow up on the connection here that uh, you have made with Iran a moment ago. uh, Two weeks
0: ago, Iran launched a drone attack against a ship in the Gulf of Oman that was connected with Israel. And then a key Iranian ally launched rockets into Israel. Are you
1: saying this is all part of a, a pattern of increased aggressiveness on the part of Iran? We're definitely seeing more aggressive behavior on the part of Iran's leadership. And it seems to correspond with the inauguration of Iran's new hardline president. Sensing a shift in power in the Middle East, he's having Iran become more aggressive to test the leadership of both Israel and the U.S. Part of that strategy is to have Hezbollah and Hamas push Israel to keep it off balance. Iran's also taking advantage of its drone technology and its perceived naval advantage by threatening shipping in the Persian Gulf. Israel's trying to get the U.S. and Britain to help organize a multinational response to Iran's actions in the Gulf region. Unfortunately, it seems likely that Russia and China will block any U.N. Security Council recommendation against Iran. That will then force these other countries to decide if they're willing to join together to intervene militarily or if they'll be satisfied with some symbolic action like announcing additional sanctions. Israel has threatened to go it alone, especially as they watch Iran approaching the breakout point for obtaining a nuclear weapon but a direct Israeli strike against Iran's nuclear facilities would force Iran to respond in some dramatic fashion, possibly by having Hezbollah and Hamas launch simultaneous attacks against Israel. Now, none of that is a foregone conclusion, Mm -hmm. but a deadly game of chicken is underway, John, between Israel and Iran, and Iran has now brought Hezbollah into play.
0: Charlie, as you scan uh, American media on this story, do you sense that our government has any grasp of the seriousness of what's at play here?
1: Uh, We certainly don't see that in the media. I I suspect our government does, and certainly uh, the head of the CIA traveled to Israel this week to confer with Israeli officials on a a U.S.-Israeli response to Iran. But uh, it's just unclear how serious the U.S. would be or how much of an action we would be willing to take uh, to stand up against Iran. That's not yet been made clear.
0: That's Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar, Middle East authority. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book, where we're working our way through a list of current events that uh, you've been seeing online and on television. Well, Charlie, visitors to London, of course, have seen the London Eye, the city's iconic 443-foot-tall Ferris wheel. Visitors to Navy Pier in Chicago are familiar with our 200-foot Centennial wheel. But apparently, plans for a similar Ferris wheel in Jerusalem have now been scrapped. What kept this project from uh, getting off the ground?
1: Well, if I can use another Ferris wheel analogy, I would say what goes around comes around. This project that they had to build a 200-foot Ferris wheel was being pushed by the Jerusalem municipality under the government of former Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, The Ferris wheel was going to be placed just to the south of the old city by the Haas Promenade. The problem is that the area is right on the border between Palestinian East Jerusalem and Jewish West Jerusalem, and a project that had the approval of the previous Israeli government and the tacit support of the previous U.S. administration is now facing significant headwind from the new governments of both countries. And that's likely why this project's been scrapped, though it wasn't given as the official reason. Now my problem with the project was that I'm not sure it made sense economically. The location is just far enough south of the city that it wouldn't have disrupted the old city's skyline, so that wasn't going to be the problem. But it's also in an area that's become more congested. Uh, It would have been difficult for individuals or groups to make their way to the site or to find parking there once they arrived. Now We may never know if it was the changing political landscape or or just a realistic look at the economic potential that finally killed the project. But for whatever reason, don't expect to ride a 200-foot Ferris wheel while (laughs) looking out over Jerusalem anytime soon. Okay. Well, archaeologists claim to have discovered evidence of an earthquake that struck Jerusalem
0: 2,800 years ago. What is the significance of this discovery?
1: You know, to read the headlines, it sounds like this is the first evidence ever discovered about this earthquake, which struck around 760 to 755 BC. But all those reports aren't entirely accurate. This is the first archaeological evidence found in Jerusalem, and the words I just emphasized are the key. The first archaeological evidence of this earthquake is actually found in the Bible. In Amos 1.1, the prophet says he announced his message two years before the earthquake, which he dates to the time of King Uzziah of Judah and King Jeroboam II of Israel. Now, evidently the quake was so severe that 200 years later, the prophet Zechariah mentioned it. In chapter 14, he says a time's coming when you'll flee as you fled from the earthquake in the time of Uzziah, king of Judah. So we've always had biblical evidence of a massive quake that occurred during the time of King Uzziah. And archaeologists have uncovered evidence of this massive quake in excavations from Tel Dan and Hotsor in the north to as far south as Gezer and Gath and Lachish. They even found evidence in core samples from sediment brought up from the bottom of the Dead Sea. So mm. in other words, it was a major earthquake that struck that entire region. Now, the significance of this recent announcement is that this is the first archaeological evidence found in Jerusalem. And what they uncovered was damage to a building from this time period, Uh, The building hadn't been destroyed by fire, but stones that had become dislodged from the wall evidently came crashing down onto a group of storage jars. The homeowners then evidently repaired the damage, but simply covered over the smashed pottery with a new floor. Now, the announcement's a good reminder for us that the Bible is historically accurate and reliable. Hmm. We knew of this earthquake from Amos and Zechariah before any archaeological discoveries were uncovered. The discoveries simply remind us again that the Bible is true. Hmm. And that's a look at
0: current events for this week here on The Land and the Book. We're coming up next. Charlie, we're looking forward to a great conversation, Mysteries of the Messiah. Then you'll be back with some uh, questions and answers from listeners. I love uh, finding out what listeners are wondering about. And then it's you and a
1: devotional that takes us where today? Psalm 84 is where we're going, but, you know, we always have the Holy Land experience. Well, in this, we're going to have the Bible's own Holy Land experience. All right. We'll look forward
0: to that and much more, including Mysteries of the Messiah, biblical connections that we need to make. All ahead next on The Land and the Book. Is it possible there are biblical connections that are largely hidden from non-Jewish eyes? What if we could connect the dots and see Jesus as he intended us to see him in Scripture? Well, it's more than an interesting thought. It's the conversation we're about to have next on The Land and the Book. Welcoming you back to Segment 2, I'm John Geiger. And before uncovering some mysteries of the Messiah— Let's tackle the mystery of sharing Yeshua with our Jewish neighbors, friends, and coworkers. Finding Messiah in unexpected places. Wouldn't you love for your Jewish friend to find him? Well, let's sit down with Michael Rydelnik and let him kind of take us on a bit of a tour. What would you say, Michael?
2: Well, there's one passage in particular that I found interesting. I was on a translation team for a, a Bible and I was given the book of Joel to do the initial translation before the team got to work on it, Mm -hmm. and we weren't allowed to look at the English Bible. And so I was translating Joel, and verse 23, I translated it quite differently than most English Bibles. In the English Bible, it says, Children of Zion, rejoice and be glad in the Lord your God, because he gives you the autumn rain for your vindication. But in Hebrew, it doesn't say that at all. It says, Rejoice, because he gives you the teacher for righteousness. That's what it says. Hmm. And it's the phrase that the Qumran, Dead Sea scroll community, they took that for their leader, the teacher of righteousness, but it actually is a promise that the Messiah would come and he would be our teacher for righteousness. Our more litstaka is what the Hebrew says. And uh, I was so surprised when I saw that. And there's actually an article in the handbook showing how this is great messianic prophecy.
0: To my friend who says, well, that's nice, but I think you're reading too much into it. What do you say?
2: Ah, I'm reading it in the Hebrew. Not too much into it. I'm reading it in the initial, uh, what the text is in the original language. And uh, that's so important not to read into it, but to read it for what the text actually says.
0: Michael Rydalnik is professor of Jewish studies at Moody Bible Institute, joining us today on The Land and the Book. Raised in a Jewish home in New Jersey, Rabbi Jason Sobel dedicated much of his life to finding truth. After years of studying and seeking, he encountered the Lord and found his true identity as a Jewish follower of Jesus, Yeshua. Suddenly, all the traditions that Rabbi Jason grew up with took on new depth and meaning as God connected ancient wisdom with the teachings of the Messiah. Well, Rabbi Jason Sobel is the founder of Fusion Global, a ministry seeking to bring people into the full inheritance of the faith by connecting treasures of the old and the new. It's a pleasure to welcome a fellow graduate of the Moody Bible Institute to the land and the book. Shalom, Jason.
3: Shalom, shalom. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me.
0: You've written that uh, most people do not understand how the Bible fits together, even people of faith. Uh, Too many Christians accept half an inheritance in that they are content to embrace merely the New Testament. Uh, How have we come to this place, Jason?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think... It's unfortunate, but I think the reality is, is one, is I think a lot of times when people just read some of the books of the Old Testament, they're like, what the heck is going on here? (laughs) It seems like it doesn't relate to me, right? All these laws, all these rules, all these things, and so therefore they don't find it as relevant. But I also just think over time there's kind of been this kind of false dichotomy that's made, like, the new is better and the old is outdated, which is completely false. Jesus came to fulfill it all.
0: Tell us a bit about Fusion Global. I probably should have asked that first. A little bit of background about your ministry and your heartbeat.
3: Yeah, really, a big part of Fusion Global is we to help people see the Bible in high definition. I'll never forget, I went out right before the Super Bowl one time and bought a high-definition television. People were like, you're going to love it. It's going to change the way you see the game. And I'm like, I didn't think it was that great. And at the end of the game, I'm flipping through the channels, and I go through the higher channels, and I have a realization, the higher channels are the high-definition channels. And I was like, <laughs> oh, this really does make a difference. <laughs> it really does make... And I feel like many people are reading the Bible in standard definition and we want people to fall more in love with the entirety of his word and with Jesus. And I think when you see how the old and the new connect and the Bible comes alive, it's it's life-changing.
0: You write, God's word, written by many people over thousands of years, is not a random collection of people and stories, but they have intricate connections. A skeptic might say, well, if that's true, then why have so many missed so many of those connections?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that clearly the writers of the New Testament saw the connections. The Gospels are based upon Messianic prophecies. What we're saying is that there's always more in the Bible. What I love about God's Word is that it is shallow enough for—it's like the ocean—it's shallow enough for any child to be able to wait in it, but it's so deep that you'll never be able to explore the depths of it. And that's the mystery and the wonders of God's Word that we want to help people explore in mysteries of the Messiah.
0: In the book, you suggest that Jesus is actually seen as the Messiah of creation. Elaborate.
3: Yeah, it's so interesting on a number of levels. I mean, for example, the very first letter in Hebrew of Genesis 1-1 is the word "bub," beginning in Hebrew is bait. The last letter of the book of Revelation is the word amen, the word end. The first letter and the last letter of the Bible spells the word ben, which means son in Hebrew, like Benjamin. Because from the first letter to the last letter, it all points to the son. But I mean, You even see this in another level, which is a lot of Christians don't even ask the question, like, why did Jesus have to die on a cross? Well, it goes back to creation. How did sin enter the world? The first man and woman stole from a tree. So God put back on the tree a cross for you and me to make an atonement, to bring about forgiveness. Why were his hands pierced? Because our hands stole from the tree. Why was his side pierced? Because who led Adam into temptation? It was Eve, the one taken from the side. So his mm-hmm. side is pierced to make atonement for the woman. A crown of thorns on, and said why? Because what's the curse of creation? The ground will produce thorns and thistles. He's taken the curse of creation on his head. Our pain, our shame, to reverse it and restore the blessing.
0: Boy, that's powerful. Powerful. Rabbi Jason Sobel, our guest, is the founder of Fusion Global, a ministry seeking to bring people into the full inheritance of the faith by connecting treasures of the old and the new. Uh, an entire chapter of the book is devoted to the Messiah revealed in Moses. Where do we see Jesus in the life of this uh, favorite Old Testament character, Moses?
3: <laughs> oh, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, he is one of the most important figures as pointing to the Messiah. I mean, Deuteronomy says, I will raise up a prophet like Moses from your midst. So in Jewish thought, the, the Messiah was going to have to be uh, like Moses. And this is what we see so much of what's going on in the New Testament. So for example, you know, Moses gives manna in the wilderness, Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish, right? Moses parts the sea. What does Jesus do? He's even greater. He walks upon the water. And so we see all these different connections between Jesus being the greater than Moses in just very significant and profound ways.
0: Well, Passover should certainly open our eyes to the life and mission of Jesus, but take us back to that Exodus moment where Messiah is so clearly revealed.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's incredible because, you know, God says to the children of Israel during the 10th plague, God says, unless I see the blood on the doorpost of your house, I won't pass over. But if I see the blood, then death won't come to your house. And so in the same way that the blood had to be sprinkled on the doorposts of the house, we have to apply the blood to our life by faith so judgment passes over. And the Last Supper was actually a Passover Seder. And when he raises the cup at the Passover Seder, the amazing thing, it was the third cup of the Passover, because there's four cups at the Passover. And the third cup refers to, in Jewish thought, the three sprinklings of the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts of the house. And then you have the bread that he broke, which was the unleavened bread, the matzah, which is pierced, striped, bruised, broken, which is fulfillment of Isaiah 53, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his stripes were healed. So when we place our faith in him, we find Jesus as our Passover, forgiveness and freedom. In him.
0: Well, Jesus is seen in all kinds of places and times in the Old Testament, but you have devoted a chapter to the Messiah in the desert. What do you mean here?
3: Yeah, you know, when I take people to Israel, one of the places I love to take them is the Judean wilderness. It's such a a powerful place, and it might seem odd to people, you like, go into the wilderness, (laughs) but it's really powerful. And, you know, one reason is because in Hebrew, the word for desert is midbar, and it actually comes from the Hebrew word to speak, which is davar. So the word for desert comes from the word to speak, because the desert is the place where God speaks his people. It is a place of intimacy. It's a place that's free of distractions. That's why God speaks to Abraham in the desert, and Moses in the burning bush in the desert, and he takes, you know, all these great men of faith out into the desert. And even Jesus himself, when he begins his ministry, has to go into the desert. Why? Just like Moses was called in the desert, Jesus has to be called in the desert as well. So God wants to transform our deserts into places of intimacy where he speaks to us and transforms us and teaches us to depend upon him.
0: Rabbi Jason Sobel is a storyteller, spiritual guide, dad, and occasional rapper sharing transforming connections about the Messiah and his Jewish roots. The love story of Ruth and Boaz, one of my favorites, is just awesome at face value. And yet, you find here a strong presence of Yeshua. Explain.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, the rabbis see so much deeper connection in the conversation between Boaz and Ruth, pointing to the Messiah's suffering and the Last Supper. But one of the things that's really, I think, significant about this as well is that in the genealogy of Jesus, there's four women. Women weren't included in Jewish genealogies in the first century, but what's even more interesting is that there's, these four women have one thing in common, they're all Gentile women. So now you have four Gentile women in the genealogy of Jesus. What is it trying to teach us? What's it trying to communicate? And it's trying to communicate that it takes Jew and Gentile together to birth the line of David, which is the line of the Messiah, and therefore it is so important for Jew and Gentile to unite in this season we see all this stuff going on in the Middle East and Israel and around the world now more than ever we have to unite to birth God's gospel and good news around the world hmm.
0: you know many people scratch their heads when we say that Jesus is definitely found in the Old Testament take us to a favorite Old Testament scene or passage where Messiah is found
3: i'm um, again you know the Messiah can be revealed on so many different levels uh, you know, in in the Old Testament, but one of the places that I love is very, the very first verse of Genesis chapter 1, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, actually, in the Hebrew, the word, the first word is bereshit. It can actually be read, through the firstborn, God created the heavens and the earth. Hmm. And when the rabbis read that, they read everything was created for the sake of the Messiah. So from the very first word in Jewish thought, <laughs> it points to the Messiah. Hmm. You know, and even the word Barat, to create out of nothing, there's an allusion to the Trinity with the three letters in it. So there's just so much there that just points to the Messiah.
0: What about the Messiah and Pentecost? Highlight this connection for us.
3: Yeah. And one of the things when people read Acts chapter 2, they read flames of fire hanging over their heads. It seems kind of strange. What the heck is going on here? What we have to understand is that Acts 2 is actually a reenactment of Mount Sinai. And just like the people were in one accord at once at Sinai, the people were united in the book of Acts. But, of course, there's more because... There's an ancient Jewish translation known as the Targums. It's kind of like the Living Bible was written in Aramaic. And, it's, and in that translation, that ancient translation says, when God spoke, it says, wings of fire came out of his mouth and inscribed the letters on the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And so what's interesting is that what the disciples have hanging over their heads in Acts chapter 2 is exactly what this ancient translation is saying. God used to inscribe the words on the tablets of the stone tablets, the reason being is that he's just starting the new covenant. So his words are no longer being written on stone tablets, being written on our heart, which is a great thing. Yeah, for
0: sure. Hey, if we really and truly embraced all that you are sharing with us about Messiah, how would our daily lives be different, Jason?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that we would have a greater passion for His Word, a greater sense of wonder, and a greater sense of mystery, and we would be excited about diving in and saying, okay, how does what I'm reading in the new connect back to the old, or how does what I read in the old connect with the new? And when we look at the Scripture from that perspective of connection, it changes and transforms our lives. It just gives us an excitement of the Word.
0: That's Rabbi Jason Sobel, who has written Mysteries of the Messiah, a link to his book and ministry at our website. You'll find us at thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. Time's gone by too quickly, but we want to say thank you, Jason. Appreciate your insights. Great stuff
3: here. Thank you. It's great being with you. Thank you so much.
0: And don't go away, because Charlie Dyer returns with a fresh set of questions here on The Land and the Book. Time once again to find out what listeners like you are puzzling over as you open your Bibles and scan through God's written word. I'm John Gager. This is the Land and the Book. Grateful that I don't have to answer those questions because Charlie Dyer is able and ready. Got your Bible open there, Charlie? You ready to take a take a look at some of these questions? I am, John. It's right here beside me. All right. Let's start with this one. What type of wine, this listener wants to know, was consumed during biblical
1: times? Were these wines alcoholic? What do you think? Yeah, and I'm going to start here by probably offending one person or another. So let me just say at the beginning, the Bible never condemns drinking alcoholic beverages, though it clearly condemns drunkenness and drinking to excess. Two passages that I just put in front of me at this point, Galatians 5.18 Paul said, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. But on the other side of the equation, Paul advised Timothy to stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Now, putting those two together tells us that uh, they could drink wine, but uh, we need to remember God never permits uh, drunkenness. Now, that leads, though, to answering the question, what type of wine was consumed during biblical times? Well, the wine mentioned in the Bible was not unfermented grape juice. And I say that for a very practical reason. The process of fermentation begins when the grapes are tread in the wine press, and it continues while that juice is collected and allowed to sit in the wine skin or a jar. Uh, Yeast can be found on the skins of the grapes, and it occurs naturally in the soil, and it interacts with the sugar in the grapes to cause fermentation. So the wine they consumed did have alcoholic content. But here's the third issue that needs to be addressed. The normal practice for the Hebrews and the Greeks was not to drink undiluted wine. Rather, the custom was to mix wine with water in varying amounts. In fact, first century writer Plutarch mentioned uh, that wine could be diluted by three parts water to two parts wine, two parts water to one part wine, and three parts water to one part wine. In other words, wine was diluted somewhere between 60 and 75 percent with water. Now that helped cut down on the alcoholic content while allowing the wine that had been produced to last longer. So the people living in Bible times did drink fermented wine, but by diluting it with water, the alcoholic content ended up being much less than the wine consumed today.
0: This is the land in the book with questions and answers. Yours might be one of them. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, working his way through email that's come our way. Sue says, I love your program and listen whenever it's on my car. I heard you mention an organization, which I believe is called CAMERA. I tried
1: to access it, but was unable to. Can you help me find their website, please? Uh, I can. And the the long name for the group is the Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting and Analysis, uh, thus the acronym CAMERA. Uh, You can find them at www.camera.org, and they do a great job of calling out inaccuracies and biases in media coverage of Israel and the Middle East. Their site is definitely worth checking out. Okay. Jim wants to know, on the
0: Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father speaks the words, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I believe that is simply the Father's confirmation of the deity of Christ. However, others have said these words were meant to rebuke Peter for implying that Jesus was equal with Moses and Elijah. Which interpretation is correct?
1: Well, since no explanation is given in the text, I can't be too dogmatic. But one observation that helps me is the realization that the words spoken by God the Father from heaven there in Matthew 17 are virtually identical to the words he spoke at Jesus' baptism back in Matthew 3. Uh, the one addition is the sentence uh, that was added, listen to him at the transfiguration. Uh, the repetition of the phrase, though, suggests to me that the words in Matthew 17 were not really a rebuke of Peter as much as they were an affirmation that Jesus was indeed the divine Son of God. And it was Peter, by the way, who had just been blessed for making that affirmation one chapter earlier in Matthew chapter 16 at Caesarea Philippi.
0: Okay, let's go to Karen's question. What is the kingdom of God Paul and Barnabas are talking about in Acts 14, verse 22? The passage says, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Can you clarify?
1: Well, I believe in in that passage in Acts 14, the phrase kingdom of God refers to the millennial kingdom that's going to be set up here on earth when Jesus returns. Luke actually uses that phrase six times in the book of Acts, from Acts 1 all the way through Acts 28, and I think it has the same meaning each time. Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey uh, were returning back through the towns that they had just gone through, and they were both warning and encouraging those who've come to faith. The warning is that those people can experience persecution. In fact, the word used there is many hardships. But the encouragement is that the end result is the still certain promise of the return of Jesus and that coming millennial kingdom. Bill says,
0: second to church on Sunday, the land and the book is the highlight of my weekends. Here's my question. In many translations of Isaiah 9, verse 6, Christ is to be called Wonderful, Counselor, two different names. While in other translations, he's called Wonderful Counselor, together as one name. It would seem to me that in keeping with the way that the other names are written with a descriptor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Peace-Giving Prince, that it should be Wonderful Counselor, not two separate names. What's the proper translation?
1: Yeah, Bill, I agree. I think it's best to translate the phrase in Isaiah 6 as Wonderful Counselor with those two words going together as a single name. Uh, The first word, by the way, is used 15 times in the Old Testament to describe the amazing acts of God. And the two words do actually occur together again in Isaiah 28, 29 to describe the Lord Almighty or the Lord of hosts who's wonderful in counsel and magnificent in wisdom. So I believe the picture there in in Isaiah 28 describes an attribute of God as the all-wise one who provides wisdom and guidance. And what's amazing to me is that in 9, 6, That same name or same attribute is used to describe this child to be born. In other words, this child will possess an attribute that belongs to God himself. Hmm. Of course, that doesn't surprise us since Isaiah 9 also goes on to describe him as mighty God, father of eternity and prince of peace. But let me add one more thing here as somebody reads that passage. I don't believe in that passage. Isaiah is confusing God the Son with God the Father. You know, in calling the Son, as as some translations have it, everlasting Father, some might think that there's a confusion. But uh, I think what he's actually doing in that case is saying the Son will be the Father in the sense of bringing into existence eternity itself. I see this as an Old Testament equivalent of, uh, say, John 1, 1 to 1, 3. Uh, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that's been made. Uh, He's not the everlasting Father in the sense that God the Father and God the Son are the same person, but He's the Father of eternity. That is, uh, Jesus gave birth to creation and eternity itself, uh, exactly the way John 1 describes It's The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, Dr. Charlie Dyer's answering questions, yours.
0: Jim says, in my daily devotions, I just finished the book of Deuteronomy, which reminds me of a question I've often wondered about. God's punishment for Moses' sin was death, and of course, not allowing him to enter the promised land. But if his death took him to paradise, how was his death before entering the promised land? Punishment. Wouldn't it be far more rewarding to enter paradise than the earthly promised land?
1: Yeah, Jim, i got to start by first saying uh, thank you for reading the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, that's uh, the place where the gilding is still on the pages for many people's Bibles. Uh, there's a lot to be found in that book and in all the Old Testament. Now, from our perspective, though, in answer to your question, we do understand that the heavenly Jerusalem or paradise is a far better destination than the earthly promised land. But I think we need to remember that Moses didn't have our theological perspective. You know, for him, the land promised to the children of Israel was a promise he longed to have fulfilled in his lifetime in our own lives. And I think we can put it in perspective this way. You know there are things we long to uh, have happen. You know we anticipate the arrival from our own wedding to the birth of a child to the visit of a beloved relative. Now, If we were to stop and think about it, we would also admit that being at home in heaven with Jesus would be far more glorious, yet we still have that sense of joy over those temporal rewards and we have sadness over their loss. Now, to not be allowed to enter and experience the land to which he had been leading the people for 40 years, that was a genuine punishment for Moses. Hmm. I suspect the moment he died, however, he did see things in a different light. One last question real quick. If Moses wrote the book
0: of Deuteronomy, who wrote Deuteronomy chapter 34, which describes the death of Moses.
1: Yeah, actually, we're not told. Now, in theory, Moses could have been given the prophetic insight to write his own obituary, so to speak, but I don't think that's required. That final chapter could have been appended by Joshua or by someone else shortly after Moses' death. Uh, We have something similar actually that happens at the end of the book of Joshua. It's as if God raised up someone to add that final paragraph to tell us the end of the story. Now, I don't know who penned either of those, but I have no problem believing the person who did so was guided to add those words by God himself. We have answered a lot of questions today, and maybe you're still
0: fuzzy about some of them. Why not play this segment again? You can hear the entire program, in fact, at our website, thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. We're about to rivet your heart and soul to a Bible passage and a place in Israel. Don't miss Charlie's devotional. It's next on The Land and the Book. Hey, thanks for listening today to The Land of the Book with our teacher, Dr. Charlie Dyer. You know, Charlie, the older I get and the more time I spend in Scripture, the more appreciation I think I have for the Psalms. They just seem to connect with us, the Psalms,
1: at the at the level of the soul. They are. They are the music that moves the truth of God from our heads to our hearts. Uh, It expresses all of the emotions from joy to uh, frustration to fear. Uh, But that's why in reading them, there's a psalm for whatever we're experiencing right now.
0: So why is it you've chosen Psalm 84 uh, for the direction of today's
1: devotional? Uh, It's a psalm written by someone who, I call him the grateful pilgrim, someone who had made the journey to Jerusalem and then wrote about it. Well, speaking of people who've made the
0: journey to Jerusalem, let's take in a Holy Land experience from someone who's been there.
4: One of my most memorable places in Israel when we traveled throughout the land was the Sea of Galilee. I remember being up on Mount Arbel and standing at the top of that uh, rather tall hill, what they call a mountain, and looking down through the valley and down to the Sea of Galilee and just wondered what it would have been like for Christ and the disciples and their view of that Region and then, as we worked our way down that valley and to the Sea of Galilee, boarded a ship, a little boat, actually a fishing boat. We went out on the lake, and we just viewed the surrounding terrain and all that that brought to our minds, and understanding how easily the weather could change and storms could crop up on that small body of water, and then to think about Christ's encounter with the disciples on that water, and all the ministry that took place there and the surrounding areas you know there's many places in israel where they say christ might have been here or he was in this vicinity but he was right there it's not a possibility he was there and that was definitely uh, one of the most memorable things that uh, struck me as we toured uh, the land of israel
0: hope you enjoyed that holy land experience And it's great to have you with us today on The Land and the Book. This fourth and final broadcast segment brings you a devotional from our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. It's always fun to see the way that he connects a a location in Israel with a passage in the Bible, cements it there forever. You almost feel like you're there. Charlie, our uh, Bibles are open to Psalm 84 for your devotional now, The Grateful Pilgrim.
1: Yeah, thanks, John. Well, and as people just heard, every week on this program, we begin this final segment with a Holy Land experience, a testimony from someone who's visited Israel. And if you've listened for any length of time, you've probably noticed several recurring themes. The trip made the Bible come alive. I felt like I was home. I sensed a closeness to God. It helped me grow spiritually. Those who've been to Israel struggle to put their thoughts and emotions into words, The trip makes a profound spiritual impact, and they find it hard to describe. And perhaps that's why God placed Psalm 84 into Israel's inspired songbook. This is the song of the grateful pilgrim, a song that seeks to put into words the spiritual impact of such a visit. So let's sit down with the anonymous writer to hear his Holy Land experience. We don't know where the psalmist was from, though we can assume he was from somewhere in the land of Israel, but we definitely know where he wanted to go. He had his heart set on visiting the temple in Jerusalem. Perhaps he was traveling there for one of the three annual pilgrimages, but whatever the reason, his soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. But what is it about this trip that has so profoundly impacted the pilgrim? Well, he instinctively knows the journey is connected in a special way to the God he loves. It's not just the beautiful temple buildings that draw him to Jerusalem. In fact, he doesn't describe it as the house of God. Instead, he uses the plural form of tent or tabernacle. It's not the buildings, but the God who tabernacles there that makes the trip so special. The writer searches for ways to describe his intense desire to visit this place so closely connected with God. He thinks about those who are privileged to spend time at the temple, from the tiniest of sparrows nesting high in the courtyard rafters, to the priests ministering at the altar, All who dwell in God's house are blessed, he says. Beginning in verse 5, the psalmist focused on the blessings reserved for the pilgrim in whose heart are the highways. The highways he has in mind are those that lead to Zion. And it's here where the writer provides his most vivid illustration of the impact the trip has on the pilgrim's life. And yet, sadly, most readers miss what he's saying. So let's slow down and look carefully at his description of the journey. Passing through the Valley of Bacah, they make it a spring. But where's the Valley of Baca? And how can pilgrims turn it into a spring? Uh, there's no specific valley in the Bible named Bacchah. Used as a noun, the word Bacah refers to the balsam trees uh, that produced the balm of Gilead mentioned in the Bible. The balsam tree would weep or drip a resinous gum that was collected and used to produce the healing balm. But when used as a verb, the word baka meant to weep, wail, or lament. It's, it's possible the tree got its name from the resinous gum that wept from the branches. Rather than identifying a specific physical location on his journey, I believe the writer is describing the emotional impact of his pilgrimage. The journey to Jerusalem took his sadness and sorrow, represented by the valley of weeping, and replaced it with a spring. Water was a symbol of life, abundance, and ultimately joy. Lest we miss the point, he immediately adds that the early rain also covers it with blessing. The early rain was part of the blessing promised by God to Israel in Deuteronomy 11. God sends his showers of blessing on the pilgrim as he makes his way to God's house in Jerusalem. The journey to Jerusalem was physically exhausting. It was for the Old Testament pilgrims, and it still is for travelers today. But rather than growing weary on the journey, he says, they go from strength to strength. They discover an unknown, unexplained sustaining power that keeps them strong, even as they journey to appear before God in Zion. The journey also has a spiritual impact on the pilgrim, and the psalm ends with his prayer to God, whom he addresses as the God of the armies of heaven, the Lord God of hosts. While he asks God to protect the king, whom he describes as Israel's shield and as God's anointed, he later acknowledges that ultimately, God is Israel's son and shield. The journey has reaffirmed the pilgrim's trust in his God. How significant is the impact of the pilgrimage? A day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I tell people that a two-week trip to Israel is like a year in Bible college or seminary, but it turns out, I've been underestimating the impact of such a trip. The writer says a single day is worth three years anywhere else. At least that's how the psalmist described it. Uh, But how can that be true? Well, the psalmist seems to provide his answer as he draws his song to a close. I actually like the King James translation of the next verse. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. The humblest position serving God in Jerusalem was far more desirable than time spent in the greatest so-called pleasure palace on earth. What happens in Vegas might supposedly stay in Vegas, but what happens to a person in Jerusalem impacts the person forever. That's true because the God we encountered during our pilgrimage is a God, he says, who gives grace and glory and a God who doesn't withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. It's time to say goodbye to our special guest today and our Holy Land experience, but as he gets ready to walk out of the studio, he turns back into the microphone one last time. What did my pilgrimage do for me? It gave me new insight into the God I love. It helped me understand life more clearly from His perspective. I started my journey carrying a heavy load of care and pain, but along the way, God replaced my tears of sorrow with tears of joy. He provided physical strength and spiritual blessing. During my journey, I came to understand what is truly significant, valuable, and lasting in life. I knew God was omnipotent, but I discovered he was my shield. I knew he was omnipresent, but I discovered he had chosen to work in a special way in this unique part of the world. I knew he was omniscient, but I discovered I was able to look on his face and learn more about him as I walked through the land where he revealed so much about himself. God didn't change during my trip, but I did. And I'll never be the same as a result.
0: Well, that's a neat story. Thank you, Charlie. Hey, we'd love to hear your story about how the land and the book is connecting with your life. Maybe giving you insights as you're teaching a Sunday school class. Maybe you're a pastor and you appreciate the insights that you're gaining here. Why not email us at book. At moody.edu. The land and the book at moody.edu. The website you can visit to connect with our Facebook page and to hear today's program again is thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. For our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, I'm John Gager. Do come back next week for more of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.